finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we talk about the only comic that my mom likes, which is Sandman. That's not true. That's not true? Oh, what, did you read the, would you read one of the Dresden Files comics? I, I did. Spoiler alert. I did read that. I uh, also read a Game of Thrones inspired comic. Graphic oh, novel. yeah. I remember that. So. Mm. Well, those are both dynamite comics. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter. Uh, so, yeah. So, we're talking. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. I don't know if you needed to know that. But this is a podcast about having conversations about things you read. And the thing that we read for this episode is the, what is it, the fourth volume of Sandman? Yes, volume four. Season of Mists. Uh, like I said, this is the fourth volume of The Sandman, the Vertigo comic written by Neil Gaiman. And this volume covers one long story. So it's another, we're back to that after a whole volume of interludes for the last one. This, this, is, is, this just has one interlude. Does but it's it, kind of thematic. Uh, yeah, it's still marked as a part of this thing. I don't even know if I consider that. It's way less of an interlude than, like, Men of Good Fortune in the Doll's House. Like, I feel like this, in a way, is another volume that is structured differently. Because we had this, you know, this series of self-contained stories with an overarching plot. We had one long story, but with a prelude and an interlude. We got four completely unconnected stories, and now we just have one complete story from beginning to end. It's a prologue and six chapters. No, it's a prologue, six chapters, and an epilogue. Right. And it's issues 21 to 28, mm -hmm. published in 1990 to 1991. Yeah. And so the artists we have in this volume uh, on pencils are Mike Dringenberg and Kelly Jones. That's it. Uh, Dringenberg draws the epilogue and the prologue, and then Kelly Jones draws all six of the main chapters. And then the inks are mostly by Malcolm Jones. Uh, issue 24 is my boy P. Craig Russell, who will come back and draw a full issue of Sandman later on. And then uh, issue 26 is inked by George Pratt. Issue six, uh, issue 27 is inked by George, uh, Dick Giordano. And then George Pratt comes back for 28. And the first two issues are colored by Steve Olaf, and the rest are all colored by Daniel Vazo. The whole thing is lettered by Todd Klein and edited by Tom Pyre and Karen Berger until issue 26, where Tom Pyre is replaced with Elisa Quitney. Okay. I think this is maybe when Pyre transitioned more to being a writer, which is what he's known for mostly right now. Okay. Well, Not that anyone cares about that. Someone might care. Um, so basically, this volume is the Lucifer story arc. Yeah, this sets up... I mean, Lucifer comes back later in Sandman, but for the most part, this is what sets up the Lucifer solo series that would go on to inspire the TV show of the same name. Right. I also... Oh, also, I think it's important to mention the introduction is written by Harlan Ellison. And the less we say about him... The easier it is for everyone who doesn't want to hear Nate's rant about Harlan Ellison. So, uh, needless I, to say, he wrote the intro. Yeah. The end. Um, but it is another example, the same thing with Clive Barker, of the introductions to these comics being written by well-regarded right. 
air quotes, or critically acclaimed uh, genre writers from outside of comics. Because was it the last volume had an introduction by Clive Barker or was that the one before that? Yes. So we've had Clive Barker, we've had Harlan Ellison. Like, I think it speaks to how DC chooses to market this series, that they're choosing these specific writers. Like, it, it sort of tells you what they imagine this book to be, which is this kind of, like, darker, artsier, kind of post-80s take on genre fiction. I think you're right. The only thing I'm going to say before we start to get into the individual episodes, actually... It's going back to the Corinthian. It's more of a comment and a question. (laughs) It's in two parts. First, I want to say that I think that this story arc is one of the best examples of the genesis of what Neil Gaiman is going to go on to write, which is his American Gods and the companion, the Anansi boys. I think it really shows, especially when the Norse gods show up, the sort of thought process that is the beginning, the germ of what will become American Gods. Yeah, we talked, I think, in when we discussed the first volume about um, the Sirens of Titan, which is a Kurt one of Kurt Vonnegut's early novels that I think is really interesting because if you read it after you've read his other stuff, you see the seeds of all these other ideas he would explore more thoroughly all crammed together in this one novel. And I think... This is a good example of why I said that Sandman is sort of Neil Gaiman's Sirens of Titan, because, like you said, a lot of the way the gods are written and the themes he's exploring in this end up in American Gods, you also see a lot of, I mean, we might touch on it later on, but, you know, his take on the Norse gods and his, the clearly the amount of research he puts into it, you know, shows up again later in Norse mythology. Right. I think there's some other stuff in here, too. Like, I think some of the stuff with the dead calls to mind you know like graveyard book exactly i think there's two there's actually two spin-offs that generate from this arc which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later sure but um so neil gaiman writes american gods in 2001 which is almost 10 years after this issue so i think you, it shows you how long that idea might have been percolating in his brain before he manifested yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it was- oh and then the second thing i wanted to say is Way back in the first podcast that we did for the first volume of The Same Man, I kept referring to the issues as episodes. Mm-hmm. And in this volume, he clearly labels each issue as an episode. Yeah. So I may have been wrong in the first podcast, but now I'm totally vindicated. This is, I think, I don't know if that's why he did it, but this does feel kind of TV-y. Not in a bad way. Like, I can 100% imagine this as an eight-episode miniseries. Like, I think you could just adapt this almost word for word, and it would work. Like, this could just be the Sandman TV show, and then you could go back later and do episodes that fill in the context. But, like, most of the backstory is there. The only thing that you would really might feel like you're missing out on is, like... No, I don't even think so. Like, they reference, like, he went to hell to get his helmet back. He had this, his, Nada killed herself, and he condemned her to hell. Like, all of that stuff, I think, could work divorced from the context we already have. I think having the context helps, but you could easily just go and backfill that. I think also this could be seen as a Lucifer prequel. 
Yeah, I think so. So they're all existing in the same world. But let's get into it. Let's get into episode zero, which is the epilogue. No, it's the prologue. Epilogue's at the end. Prologue. I'm sorry. Yeah, so this is the, one of the ones that's drawn by Mike Dringenberg. And I think this is like, this isn't the first we've seen Destiny, but I think this is the biggest role he's had yet. Right. And so the basically what this issue is, is Destiny is walking in his garden, reading his book that contains everything that will happen and ever has happened. Mm-hmm. And he's approached by our old friends, the kindly ones, the triple goddess, the Hecate, whatever you want to call them. They show up and basically give him a prophecy. And that leads to him calling the rest of the available endless to his, like, home for a dinner, which then sets in motion the rest of this story. I think this is also, even though it's the fourth volume of the 10-volume series, and it's actually the 21st issue, I think this is the first really concrete introduction to all of the endless. And they even make mention of the wayward brother. Yeah, do they identify what his name is? Do they name him at any point? I couldn't remember after I finished reading it, and I was thinking back on what happened in this volume. I don't know if we actually know who he is yet, just that he's missing. I don't. I don't think so. And I think that later on in the in the progression of the story, when I think it's Bass, the Egyptian cat god yeah she tries to bargain with dream and she brings up his brother yeah this this whole volume sets up a ton of stuff for later on and towards the end we we really dig into the idea that he's got this missing brother um a lot of the idea of like change comes up a ton of this we learn i think we've seen delirium at some point before but we actually really get to meet her in this we see that she's sort of troubled and maybe kind of traumatized that she used to be delight and she's not anymore and they're not allowed to talk about why or what happened because it makes her very upset yeah and i don't know does the brother's disappearance have something to do with her change i don't want to spoil anything but i don't think it's ever fully revealed what happened to her it seems like it might have been desire's fault Desire kind of acts like they did it. I it, it like I always thought that whatever happened to her was sort of like what Desire was trying to do to Dream in the Doll's House, like where he was trying to make something bad happen without ever acting directly against yeah. their sibling. So, so cat's paw, which is why Desire taunting Delirium about her current status is all the more galling in this issue. Because yeah. it's like, you you know what you did, you motherfucker. So, after Destiny talks to the witches, he calls a family meeting. And one of the things I think is really interesting, because it sort of harkens back to the previous issues, where Dream is also in his gallery. Mm-hmm. So when the Endless are in their gallery, and they're looking at the portraits of their siblings... The portraits look like how that Endless sees their siblings. Yeah, and it makes something that happens in the doll's house a pretty interesting bit of characterization because, like you said, the the gallery is how they see the fellow Endless. So Destiny has these, like, austere portraits of them in this, like, in costumes, essentially. Death is kind of dressed like a witch. Dream is sort of dressed like a 
the colonial like admiral he looks yeah, like. Yeah, he's kind of wearing like a Sir Walter Raleigh like sea captain outfit. But in the doll's house, when we see Desire's gallery, they're all objects. They're all represented by things and not as actual people, which is like, yeah, I guess that's probably how Desire would see everybody, even their siblings. Because I think, like, death is just an ankh in Desire's gallery. Yeah, and I think the the pic- the one picture, and I think it's Delight, she looks sort of like a, like a, you know, like a Remington. It's more of like a, um, like a British portraiture style. She looks like a shepherdess and she's very innocent. And so I guess the way he's, like you said, he sees them in a more formal way. Yeah, it actually adds a nice little bit of subtle characterization to Destiny because he clearly sees, he sees his siblings with like an air of respect, right? Because like they're... There are these very flattering portraits. And then it's this other thing where, like, clearly, for as much as Destiny is portrayed as this kind of, like, unknowable, wise sage, like, he's clearly still hung up on whatever happened to Delirium and hasn't fully accepted it. Because, you know, we see a very deliberate, like, contrast between her and the portrait and her when she actually shows up and she's, like, in a bodysuit with torn fishnets and her hair is cut all short. Yeah, it definitely is. A, it's like a like a homage almost to like Madonna. Yeah. You know, the way she arrives. Yeah, because he makes a kind of like comment about like, couldn't you dress up or could you, you know, be more formal? This is a serious affair. He, you know, death shows up and she's dressed like Cindy Lauper. And then he's kind of like, could you put on like something nice? But then when Dream shows up, he's wearing this sort of, exaggerated sea captain outfit which is kind of ridiculous it's one of my favorite outfits he he wears in the series it's really good but yeah and despair just shows up completely naked that yeah. just seems to be no one calls her out that's just i guess that's just her thing <laughs> but i think it's interesting because it, it they are now like the endless is completely revealed. The only one who's not there is the brother. So you kind of, even though they were hinted in the other issues, you get to see them, you get to see them interact. And it's kind of like, like you said, it reveals a lot about the roles that they each play. And it's kind of like, almost like sibling dynamics because immediately like they start like ganging up on dream and they start criticizing him about, and then I guess for whatever reason, death is like fixated on Nada and she keeps bringing her up and finally gets to the point where she convinces him that he needs to go to hell and get her back and make amends to her. Well, I think it goes back to the sound of her wings. Like she's clearly has a commitment to trying to make dream better. And like, this is his big thing that he needs to confront is like what he did to Nada and what has been going on with her for the past, you know, centuries. I mean, he literally goes to hell in the first volume and can't even look at her. Yeah. So I, I understand why she would, like, want to press that. Because the bulk of what happens in the issue is it's mostly just Desire fucking with people. It felt very real to me the way that, like, Desire starts trying to fuck with Delirium and she just won't have it. She's just like, shut up, don't talk about that. And so he immediately switches to fucking with dream who he knows they can get a rise out of because like that's exactly how it works like oh 
you won't, I'm the, you know, it's, you're the bully of the, the family and it's like, oh, I can't get this one person to respond to me. But I know that Dream is a sensitive little whiny boy, so I can get a rise out of him, so I'm gonna do it. And Desire starts needling Dream about Nada. Well, I think Dream is also, he has poor impulse control. Oh, yeah, you think? He can easily be (laughs) manipulated. But I think that, well, that's the whole nut of this prologue, is the set up this, like, Destiny sees what's going to happen, and he is forced to put in motion the actions that lead to Lucifer leaving hell. And he knows the way to do it is to have this family meeting. Because the dynamics of the family is going to push this into motion. And in fact, he says at the end when they come back in and he's like, well, you know, Death says, well, should we keep talking? And then Destiny says, nope, we're done. We only needed to get Morpheus to go to hell. And we've done that. So meeting's over. Yeah, this really make, it really makes you feel bad for, for, for Dream on one end because, I mean, he fucked up. But also it's just like... He's constantly getting dunked on by his siblings. But the other hand, I feel really bad for Destiny. Because, like, we know from the portraits that clearly he, you know, sees his siblings with a certain level of respect and affection. And he is forced to engineer this situation where he knows they're going to fight. And he can't step in to do anything about it. He just has to, like let it happen and let them unravel because that's just his role. And I think it's kind of a microcosm probably goes on with destiny all the time because, you know, they know, like essentially destiny doesn't have any free will because they know exactly what's going to happen and what they're going to do at any given moment. But you know what I think it is? I think despite how he feels about his siblings, he, he most of all of the endless is the one who is driven by what his role is. Yeah, his role defines him. Mm-hmm. So, even though even if he did have free will, he feels obligated to follow what is in the book. So, even though the other endless are more, they're kind of like more goofball. They're kind of more impulse driven. They kind of like float in and out of each other's lives. The Choices that they make affect destiny, and he has to follow what is in the book. I think it's interesting to see the ways that the different endless respond to their roles. Because like you said, you have destiny who is, like, dutiful in fulfilling his role in the universe. And then you have Dream who is, like, tortured by it. Like, you kind of get the impression a lot of times from Dream that they would rather be doing anything but being Dream of the Endless. And then you have Death, who's, like, embraced their role, but has, like, made it their own. And she's not completely defined by being Death. She has her own personality independent of it, but she still is Death and does what she needs to do. And then you have, like, Desire, who sort of has, I think, has kind of the illusion that they are like Death, but is much more like Dream, where they're just kind of, like, a tool in, to like they're just kind of enslaved to their role in the endless and then as we'll find out later we have the brother who has completely rebelled and rejected their role i think that desire is almost like the loki character that like is sort of the instigator for trouble and for drama and for like almost like a level of chaos like we have delirium who 
who's supposed to be the one that's injecting this sort of chaos and mm-hmm. unbalance to the family, but it seems like Desire is the one who actually does more of that. Yeah, Delirium's more like Dream in that she's like struggling under the weight yeah. of what she is. But I think that the story now, when he decides he's going to go and rescue Nada, it's almost like the first volume where he has a quest. It's almost like when he goes to get his tools, he has set himself a quest and now he is going to achieve it. Yeah, so by the end of this first issue, this this epilogue, or you got me doing it, this prologue, Dream decides he's going to go to hell and free Nada and try and, uh, I don't know, maybe not necessarily make up for what he did, but at least confront what he did all those years ago. And that's that's the end of this this volume, right? Right, and then it starts um, with episode one, which I think has the the most changes to Morpheus's appearance. I mean, once once episode one starts, there's like six hundred manifestations of the same man that you see just in this series. Yeah, so the bulk of this issue is just Dream preparing right to go to hell. And preparing for the possibility that Lucifer will want to enact vengeance on him for his actions in the first volume, and so he might die. So we see him gather all the dreams together and give them a speech about, like, hey, I'm going away, I might be gone for a long time, I might not ever come back. And this is the first instance we get of, like, what happens when an Endless dies, because he says that if he does die, another aspect of Dream will take over. And I think, fittingly, not too long after... Well, okay. I wanted, I wanted to draw a connection between two things that happened, but I think that might be a major spoiler. Well, I, I in my notes, labeled this one um, Dream Staff Meeting. Oh, it's definitely Dream Staff Meeting. Because I think he realized what happened last time when he was gone for so long. So he sort of wanted, wants to preempt that by sort of giving them direction and then sort of in a little bit of a way threatening them not to get up to their chicanery of what they were doing last time. He doesn't want anybody escaping from dream and going into the real world and causing all kinds of problems like they did in the doll's house. So he sort of sets that up. I also thought it was interesting to pave his way to hell. He sends Cain there first to meet with Lucifer as his messenger. And I think that's an interesting use of Cain. Yeah, that's the other big thing that happens is he sends an emissary to announce his presence. There's a nice little conversation he has with Matthew where Matthew's like, well, you could just sneak in or whatever. And he's like, well, I already told them I was coming because it would be dishonorable for me to show up unannounced. And we see a little bit more of Dream, like, accepting his role as, like, the Lord of Sleep. Like, that. Like that's a very, like, formalized, like, okay, right. these are the rules. I got to send an emissary. I'm going to send the first murderer ever to go talk to the devil. And then it turns out to be, like, a little, like, he's he's getting up to a little trickster business himself because he specifically sends the guy you can't kill. Yeah, because if you kill him, then you... Yeah, he has the mark of Cain on him. Vengeance is visited upon you sevenfold. That doesn't stop Lucifer from torturing him and giving Cain a little bit, a little taste of his own medicine, which he does not learn any lesson from, as I, we see later on in the story. 
just a side note that's not really part of the plot point of this this arch. I like in the beginning when you meet Lucian and you see the library and he sort of explains what the dream library is and then he talks about every book that every writer didn't write but dreamed about Mm -hmm. and I think that's sort of a nice sort of enhancement to the story because you get to see a little bit about what happens in dreams domain I mean you see the the castle that he lives in and you get to meet some of his servants and you get to hear sort of what's going on and Lucian and Matthew have a conversation and then you get to see all the characters that come to the meeting and you get to see Merv and some of the other characters that you that are sort of almost like background or little sub stories. Yeah, so the there that I like that part a lot, the little bit about all the the books that were only ever were never written or only finished in dreams. Uh the ones that we get to see let me pull up I can pull up the panel are uh Alice's Journey Behind the Moon by Alice Carroll. Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll, sorry. Uh, the Lost Road by J.R.R. Tol- Tolkien. The Man Who Was October by G.K. Chesterton. Poisetomy's Babylon by James Branch Cabell. The Conscience of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. The Return of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens. The Hand of Glory by Erasmus Fry. This is a character that we saw in the last volume. Right. Uh, the Dark God's Darlings by Lord Dunsany. Love Can Be Murdered by Raymond Chandler, and Smith and Jeeves by P.J. Wodehouse. Uh, man, I, two of those I would like very much like to read. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And then the, the just not, I guess a spoiler, sort of, for something we'll talk about later. The book actually ends with a quote from the man who was October. Yeah, because I, I thought, I wrote in my notes that we find out that Destiny is a G.K. Chesterton fan. Yeah. So so that's interesting. Everybody loves G.K. Chesterton and Sandman. But I like the idea that there could be... Because it comes up later on when Bast is talking about the dreams of the newly dead. And you start to realize that, like, humans' dreams are a commodity that can be, like, accumulated or saved or manipulated in some way to make some kind of like deals and stuff like that in the dream world that they have value to the people who are the gods or whatever. Yeah. We get a little bit of taste of that in volume two with what Brute and Glob are doing with Jed and Hector Hall, where they're using these dreams to build this little domain of power for themselves. I also really like his Morpheus's, um, robe that he wears in this episode this sort of really flouncy robe and it kind of foreshadows the robes that the angels are and to a certain extent lucifer is going to be wearing later on do you like his outfit with the big bow tie when he visits hob so the other two, two big things that happen he has the meeting with he has the staff meeting with all the dreams he sends Cain to hell and then the other two big things that happen is he goes and he has uh a drink of wine with his old friend Hob Gambling, visiting him in his dreams. And he goes to visit Daniel Hall, the baby that he claimed in the doll's house. Yeah, and he and he names her. Yeah, At he, that point, we learn that he's actually Daniel. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a plot reveal that's very important later on. 
I just wanted to say that I think that in this issue, Kane really has like a Wolverine vibe. Oh, yeah. Well, Kelly Jones has a very exaggerated art style. I think his stuff is not that dissimilar to Keith Jones' stuff in the first volume. And he draws he draws Lucian's hair huge, and he draws Kane's hair even bigger. But I think Lucian's hair is sort of that way. Yeah, Lucian has like Nicolas Cage hair. Yeah, definitely. He definitely reminds me of Nicolas Cage. But I just thought that Kane sort of reminded me of like Fiddler's Green. He looked a little bit like Wolverine. So he sort of had that kind of... Kane has a very weird... This is a kind of a digression, I guess. Kane has a very weird visual language to him. Because he's a murderer. And almost every time we see him, he is killing or torturing Abel. But he's sort of dressed like a professor. But he has this, like, wolverine hair and this, like, wolfish Amish beard. But then he's also wearing the tiny glasses. And he has big, owly eyebrows and obviously this is like a design that predates sandman because he you know was originally the see house of mystery or house of secrets i can't remember but he he hosted one of the horror comics but there's this i don't know why what the deal is but there's this like man and beast scholar and animal like brute and intellectual like dichotomy going on in his visual design which comes across a little bit in his character I think we talked about this in a previous podcast. I think that Neil Gaiman's view, like he has the same view of Lucifer. I think he views Cain, who has this, in literature and pop culture, and in Catholicism especially, Cain is viewed as a monster. He's the first murderer. He's, you know, he's sent sent away. He's ostracized. He's vilified. But... Neil Gaiman sort of makes Kane seem like he may have either been an accidental murderer or it's more complicated than cut and dry. Like, he killed his brother and he gets punished. Like, you know, the, the like, Catholicism of Kane is it's very cut and dry. It's black and white. He killed his brother. He's a murderer. He walks all eternity and he never has any remorse. But we don't really see that. And it's the same thing with Lucifer, you know, pop culture, Lucifer is the devil, and the devil is, like, evil, and he tortures people. But in Neil Gaiman's version of Lucifer, he's just the administrator of hell. And humans put themselves in hell, and they torture themselves. And it's very clear that Lucifer never says, you're bad, and you deserve to be in hell. Like, he like he gives them the choice, and they choose to come. So he sort of has a more compassionate view of these characters that are often seen as like villains in religious iconography. Yeah, I don't think he ever really makes an excuse for Cain. Like Cain's still a bad dude. But obviously a lot of the interactions with Cain and Abel that are in the previous issues Abel infuriates Cain to a point that he's forced like he his just his main impulse is to kill his brother. I think in a way they're almost so like they're like a self-driving machine. Like Abel picks on Cain and Cain gets enraged and he murders his brother. And then when Abel comes back, he's upset because of what happened. So they just they're just in this endless cycle of fighting and killing and fighting and killing. And both of them don't know how to like break that cycle. Yeah, I think in a way their relationship is almost like an internal parody of 
the relationship between the endless like it's this cycle of sibling conflict where you just sort of feed into each other like you were saying and i think like whereas the endless their conflict plays out over these long like mytho mythological conflicts with you know desire trying to trick dream into murdering his grand niece or whatever Whereas Cain and Abel, it just culminates in an off-panel murder of Abel. But it's the same kind of, like, thing. Like, th these tensions that build inevitably to these conflicts. But then because you're related, it, you know, if you had a conflict with some other person, it would just be over after that. But it's like it's always going to come back because you can never completely detach yourself from your family. I mean, you, you can, sort of, but not really. But in my mind, this depiction of Cain and Abel is almost like Wile E. Coyote and the mm -hmm. Roadrunner. I mean, they're just, they're set in these roles and they're just keep, I mean, Abel doesn't do anything to stop himself from getting murdered. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he's almost just as culpable as Cain for murdering him. That's a slippery slope to to deal with those ideas. But I, I, I do see what you're saying. But I think that's the same thing. Like, the in a way, the endless are kind of like, the Looney Tunes. Like, they're always going to be doing this. Desire's always going to be fucking with Dream. Dream's always going to be too emotional and fly off the handle and do something stupid. Like, and a lot of this issue, and a or this uh, story, and a lot of Sandman in general is about how do you break those cycles and become somebody new and better who is not susceptible to repeating the same, you know potentially toxic at the very least destructive behaviors over and over again like we we see that in the way that dream changes like dr this i feel like is you know how the i was saying that the last volume was kind of in some ways going back and showing us what old dream was like before he started his character arc to kind of highlight how much he's changed i think this volume also serves to like all right now let's go back and explore what he's like now and really show you how much he changed because he has an interaction with a character at the end of this that is so far removed from how he would have acted in the first volume. And it feels completely natural that he would get to that point. And it's like, yeah, he's starting to break out of these rigidly defined roles that kind of strip away your humanity to a certain extent. And he's regaining and adding layers to himself. Yeah, I think he's growing and he's developing. Do you want to move on to the next? Yeah. Because this is one where that the themes you're talking about really start to come into the fold. Because this is the issue where Dream goes to hell. And this is like, most of this issue is a monologue from Lucifer. Yeah, and I think this is, so Dream goes to hell. He walks in and he sees that it's empty and he sort of wanders around and he says, where is everybody? He goes to look for Nada and she's obviously not in the cell that he saw her in. When he went to hell the first time. And he's he's got his helm on. He's he's obviously there for a formal visit. He's wearing mm -hmm. the helm. He's wearing this very flouncy sort of judge style robe. And he's trying to sort of find Lucifer. So he can have this sort of formalized meeting with him. To discuss how he can get Nada released. But unbeknowing to him... Lucifer has previously emptied out hell and is in the process of tidying up and closing and locking the door. Yeah, this is like visually 
like this beginning of this issue is like the least human dream has ever looked his robe is literally just like a shapeless cloud of fabric you don't see his face he's got the full helmet on like he looks like a monster he looks like a nightmare and then he lucifer shows up and he's like take off your helmet and dream's like no i don't want to do that i'm i'm trying to be scary and he's like just fucking take off your helmet dude we're trying to have a conversation and he takes it off and it's like now they're just two dudes one-on-one and we really see the way that they are similar. Like, Lucifer is is kind of... He very quickly... I guess not very quickly, because it's been happening to him for billions of years. But, like, in the span between the previous issue and this issue, he kind of goes through Dream's character arc in an ex- at an accelerated pace. But he comes to a completely different conclusion where he's like, fuck this role. I'm Dunsky. I'm not going to do it anymore. I have emptied out hell. And I'm going to do go do whatever I want. Not here. And I think this is when you start to realize that Lucifer is, he was somehow manipulated to go to hell. Yeah. So he, so, and then when he got the hell, he was given that role as, you know, he's the fallen angel and he's in charge of hell. He doesn't necessarily want to be there and he doesn't necessarily, um, sort of believe in this sort of process of this torture and, You know, so he's kind of like, he's jaded and he's upset and he has this like, and you'll learn that later on in the spinoff series and in the television series, he's a very complicated relationship with his father, who is God. Well, this, I think, leans very hard into a reading that a lot of people have. I'm not going to say I do, but I definitely do, of like Paradise Lost, where it's there are are some serious queer themes there like you say father but i i the way that lucifer in this talks about the creator he's clearly like in love with him and he feels betrayed like it feels like more romantic yeah and i than think, I think it's, it's often portrayed it's also a clear indication that even though the endless are gods and later on you meet the Norse gods and and other gods from different cultures, concurrent to that is the, you know, the god of like Christianity and like Catholicism or Protestantism that sort of just kind of nebulously, like not involved in what's going on in the story. Because like when you see like later on with the Norse gods, these gods come and they try to interact and they try to negotiate for hell. And then God, the big God. The creator that lives in the silver city, which isn't necessarily heaven, but is this other realm that exists outside of earth and the dreaming and all of these other realms we've already seen. Right. This creator now has a stake in what's going on before they were sort of just observing and now they have a stake in it. I also want to go back to the sort of visual imagery of Morpheus Mm -hmm. because he, like you said, he looks least humanoid in this. He sort of looks like, he really looks like a Geiger monster. He has that sort of elongated helm that has the articulated like spinal column on the front and he has this sort of or elephant trunk yeah he has like this head that's sort of like shaped like the alien Mm -hmm. and he's wearing this sort of flowing cloak that sort of just 
sort of undulates and it's very strange. Yeah, I think this is like one of the best looks we've gotten at his his helm before. And I think it's like a really interesting, there's a really interesting philosophy at work behind the design of his helm. He really looks like an insectoid. I mean, it really, he's, yeah, he's got like, that sort of praying mantis predator feel to him. And a lot of times his like, his, his robe sort of looks like wings. I sort of, I think, that's why I said it's almost like a foreshadowing when the two angels show up, they're also wearing a very similar type of flowing, undulating kind of robe. But theirs, theirs are white and they're more wholesome looking. Like, Dreams is kind of ragged at the edges and you can see little holes in it and things like that. So yeah, so the thing I wanted to say is like, so what we're told in the first volume is that the Golden Age Sandman, who is a guy who fought crime wearing a gas mask and a fedora and a trench coat, was sort of like the universe's attempt to to kind of create a new dream. And so there's this interesting idea where his helmet, we keep calling it a gas mask. But the idea is supposed to be that, like, humanity created the imagery of the gas mask as a reflection of, like, our shared collective memory of what this helmet looks like. So that eventually this dude could wear it. And it's like this interesting idea. So it's like if this impersonal gas mask that Wesley Dodds, the original Sandman, wore is like the comforting version that humanity created, what does the scary real version look like? And it's this like wild monstrous helmet, which I think is a really cool like design philosophy. I think that's an interesting way to approach what the Sandman looks like. Like, if essentially, like, Wesley Dodds is wearing, like, a shaman's costume, like a, you know, like, one of those, like, wild man, like, fur outfits, and it's like, what does the thing he's dressing up as look like if he's approaching it with this imperfect, semi-mystical human perception of it? And so it's like the trench coat becomes this impossible flowing robe that's essentially just like a waving ribbon of darkness and the mass becomes this, like, monster insect face. And, yeah, it works really well. I think it's also, I mean, it, it's the same thing with Lucifer. Like, when you see him, he has his full wings on, and they're sort of, they're very, they're, like, bat-like. They're very, sort of, they're fleshy. They're not feathers. They're kind of, like, they're almost, like, you know, like a Hieronymus Bosch depiction of what, like, a devilish imp, what kind of wings they would have. I mean, I think he's very much supposed to be the, um, what is that painting? That, that one that's always, like, the cover of any republished version of Paradise Lost, that, like, fall of Lucifer painting where he has the bat wings and the ray of sun is, like, throwing him down. I think he's he's very much supposed to invoke that image of Lucifer as, like, He's still a beautiful angel, depending to your taste. I don't know if Kelly Jones' version of him is the most beautiful. He's certainly not the David Bowie version that Sam Keith was drawing. But, like, he's still this beautiful angel, except he's got these bat wings instead of the, you know, feathery bird wings that we as, you know, sort of post-1600s, people growing up in a sort of Western milieu imagine angels to have. But you know what I think, too? I think, going back to Paradise Lost, I think Milton also has a very sympathetic view 
of Lucifer, of the devil. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he... Any any version of the devil where he is a demon and he's a monster and he relishes the role of being the, you know, the king of hell is sort of, it's less sympathetic than these two versions where Lucifer is a fallen angel. He had a relationship with God. Things happened. He was sent down to hell. So to him, he is also being punished as the other people who are in hell are be- for their sins are also being punished as opposed to sort of this sort of cut and dry depiction of Lucifer where he is evil and he does evil things to people. So this version that's in this story and in the spin-off series and in the television series is he is just he is being tortured in a different way in the same way that any person who lived who was sent to hell is being tortured. And I think it's the same thing like the depiction of the devil in like William Blake's writings and in his drawings of the devil. It's the same thing. You see a human angel form is their version of the devil. And I think that's the distinction that instead of being like the devil, it has like horns and wings and he's red, he's got the cloven foot. Like this is sort of like you know that he was at one time in the grace of the creator and he has fallen out of favor. Yeah, I think there's a couple of important things about the way that this version of the devil is portrayed is, one, he's he's not the devil. He's not Satan. He's just Lucifer. Like right. he, he explicitly talks about, like, why would I need human souls? Like, they, they give them to you willingly, which is like, we'll talk about that, I think, this the way that hell is portrayed in this. But then I think the other thing is, I don't think this is a Lucifer where his sin is pride. I think this is a Lucifer who falls because they love something that cannot be loved or return their love because it's the creator who is this impersonal force. And I think we see that with the angels too. In a way, Lucifer is, and he's like Nada. Yes, exactly. But I think, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's It's a sophisticated view of you know the difference between heaven and hell or the silver city and lucifer and lucifer's domain i think it's also interesting when you get to the next episode and they start to talk about why these different gods want hell sure and it sort of like shows you like the sort of fluid nature of what hell could be so what do you think about the way hell is portrayed in this because we get this sequence where Lucifer and Dream are traveling through hell. And Lucifer's like, I gotta tie up some loose ends. And they meet this dude who's chained to a rock and being tortured. And we get the first reveal of this idea that, like, you put yourself in hell. You give your, you torture yourself with the tortures you feel you deserve. And it's like, what? how do you feel about that portrayal of hell? Rather than being just like this, like, ultimate, like, divinely just punishment on exactly the people who deserve it in exactly the way they deserve it. I can relate to that much more because to me, it feels much more like a humanist version of religion, which is something that I would be more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Because I think it sort of shows to the extreme the importance of free will. Because people make their decisions, they make their choices, and they have to live with the decisions. Sometimes people who have free will choose to ignore 
the consequences and to live sort of this sort of hedonistic lifestyle. And some people who do bad things ask for forgiveness and some people who do bad things relish in the fact that they do bad things. And even this character who's like there torturing himself and even though Lucifer says, you're free to go, he says, I don't want to go. I want to keep torturing myself because I did all these terrible things. So it's like your version of hell is the punishment that you think you deserve. Yeah. There's also kind of an Ozymandias thing that happens in that scene where he's like, nobody remembers you. You're torturing yourselves for things that in the end don't really matter. I think that there's a danger in taking this as like you are responsible for the suffering you experience which is sometimes true but like a lot of times isn't and it's kind of like can lead to justifying a, a sort of uh indifference towards some people's suffering but i think the idea that you're always punishing yourself worse than anyone else would and the idea that like the things that matter to you don't necessarily matter to the world and like sometimes beating yourself up over those things accomplishes nothing except making you suffer is kind of a good idea i just think like there's a broader application of this idea that is a little icky but i think that's i mean it's interesting because like going back to kane like is kane's punishment just the version of the kind of hell that kane would create for himself i mean it kind of makes sense right he kills his brother who's like this like connection there's like one of his only connections in the world and then is forced to live a life where he's incapable of making any more connections where he has to forever be a wanderer and the only person he can connect with is the person who he killed and i'm sure like if he feels any remorse then having to constantly be around abel is probably a, a constant torture but i think it's like I mean, at the one point where, and it's funny because it takes place in sort of like an office, like Lucifer's office, where he's talking to Dream and he says, oh, these mortals. And he goes on and he says, they blame me for all of their failings. He says, they use my name to, you know, for the responsibility for the things that they do. And they like, he even says like, as if I spend my entire day sitting on their shoulders, forcing them to commit acts they would otherwise find repulsive. The devil made me do it. I have never made any of them do anything, never. They live their own tiny lives. So he's kind of saying that, like, people use him as an excuse for their own bad behavior, and he's just tired of it. Yeah. I think that's really good. I, I, I like that that message. I think that's... I mean, that's when he says, I have no use for their human souls. Like, you know, I don't bargain with them. I don't go out and solicit them and ask them to do things in my name. They do it themselves. And I think that's like, that's kind of like the flip side of free will. Like, mm -hmm. yes, you have free will. You can make your own choices. But, you know, Lucifer is dealing with your decisions because you don't want to, you want to have free will. You want to do what you want. But then you, there's a part of you that doesn't want to pay the ultimate consequence. Yeah. I mean, this story really does come down hard on the, like, free will exists. You can you can make your own, do your own thing and you make your own decisions and create the world you live in. And then in contrast, we are shown characters that do not have free will in the form of destiny and then later the angels. And we get to see how horrifying that is. But I think Dream is sort of the same way. I mean, he does all these things and he's like, oh, I, I, 
you know, I had no choice. I, you know, I had to do them. I have, I'm dream. I have to do these things. Yeah. And we're seeing, but we're seeing like, this is a story about dream accepting responsibility for he does. And the broader story of Sammy is a story about dream struggling to create like free will for himself. I never get the impression that he realized like that he really feels bad for what he did. I think he feels more ashamed for what he did. I think what he does later on in the story, I think makes it clear that he feels guiltier than he's letting on here. Because he does something pretty serious yeah. at the end of the of the entirety of the story that I, I have a hard time reading as anything but him seeing the person that he is who did these things and rejecting it. So Lucifer and Dream have this long conversation as Lucifer's going through hell, cleaning up some extra things, locking the doors, and he really fails... Like, Dream really fails to convince Lucifer that he should leave. And he kind of, in a lot of ways, agrees with him. And yeah. then, so then he gives him the key, which looks like a sigil. And then he says to him, there's one more thing you have to do, which is kind of like, it's in the TV series. I don't know if it's in the spinoff, but, you know, in the TV series, he's constantly, when he becomes self-aware, he grows his wings back. I think that happens in the comics. So he's always constantly at a point where he needs to cut off his wings. So he asks Dream to cut off his wings. And of course, he does it. And then Lucifer is, he's not a human, but he's in a human form now. So he just leaves hell. Well, yeah. And he get but I, I love the moment where he gives Dream the key. What does he say? He talks about how he vowed, yeah, he says, I swore once that I would destroy you. Did I not? Uh, and then he says, well, we're outside the bounds of hell. This is for you to take, you dream lord, take it. And then he says, perhaps it will destroy you and perhaps it won't, but I doubt it will make your life any easier. It's all yours now, Morpheus. You're the sole monarch of a locked and empty hell. Perhaps I ought to have given it to you with my best wishes. I would have told you that I hoped it would bring you happiness, but somehow I doubt it will. And he's super duper right. And it's like, more so than... I think desire or any of the various tricksters at work in this story, this one act of giving dream this further responsibility does more to hurt him and ultimately engineer his downfall than any other action, any character takes in the whole book. I think in a way, the moment where Lucifer gives dream the key is the most important moment in the whole series. I could agree with that. Because it sets so much stuff into motion. But it also goes back to this theme. Like, Lucifer talks about the idea of happiness throughout this issue. He references a uh, demon story where Etchegrin takes the throne of hell. And he's like, perhaps it made him happy, at least for a moment. And I think, like, you were talking about Lucifer being sympathetic. And I don't think there's anything more sympathetic than a guy who hates his job and just wants to quit and sit on the beach and figure out what it's going to take to finally make him happy because he hasn't been happy in forever. Yeah, and I think th- I think that's exactly what happens. So he walks off, and then I guess time goes by a little bit, and then it cuts into episode three, which is when we start to meet the other gods. So it starts with this sort of... Odin is sort of thinking, he's sitting on the throne, he's giving himself some thoughts, and he kind of decides that he wants to take over hell. Uh, can I just say, though, before we go off of the previous issue, I just want to, for a moment, touch on how great a bait-and-switch that whole issue is. It's such a great little, like, 
writing prank on the reader because we get this whole issue of setup where Jim's like, I might not come back. I might die. This might be the most dangerous thing I've ever done. And we get this whole sequence of Lucifer and Cain where Lucifer's so threatening and it's like, <laughs> I've got this insidious plot. And you're like building up for this showdown between these two monumental forces. And then Dream shows up and hell's empty and Lucifer doesn't do anything to him except give him the key. And in the end, that's way more brutal than any right. big monster fight they could have had. That's a very good issue of comics. Yeah. No, no, that's good. Yeah. So like you're saying, the next issue starts with Odin and it's this very moody, traditional portrait of Odin. Like when I read this comic for the first time when I was in high school or like early in high school. And this was, like, the first time I had seen a portrayal of the Norse gods in comics that wasn't, like, the Jack Kirby Marvel Thor. And it's so different. Like, Odin is not portrayed as this, like, giant, towering, super god alien. He's just, like, a dude in a house with a hat who can't, has no access to memory or thought until his ravens of the same names come back and give them to him. Yeah, and I also, I mean, it's interesting... The Thor that's depicted here is so he's almost like a muscle man from like an anime series. I mean, he's just muscle and muscle and muscle, and he's kind of like this, uh, like un, like you know, ha- hardly like evolved like male creature. I mean, he just spends all of his time like hitting on women and drinking, and he's kind of like a very base hedonistic Thor. He's kind of sad. Yeah, he really is. He's like a like an eighties wrestler in in my mind. Oh, totally. I think it's interesting the way that um, Kelly Jones does a good job of taking these gods who are essentially are supposed to just sort of look like people and exaggerating them. So like Thor is this like impossibly huge mass of muscles, and Loki has this like crazy pointy like triangle shaped head. He doesn't even really look human. He kind of reminds me, and I can't think of his name right now, but the Hobgoblin from uh, the episode, the Midsummer Nights episode. Robin Goodfellow? Yes. That's very important later. Yes. Because <laughs> by the end of this story, we've got, what do we have, three tricksters on the loose. We've got Desire, Robin Goodfellow, and Loki. Right. And they all kind of, they kind of come together. Well, yeah. we got to do it. It's like a, a super group. But yeah, so I mean... But the depiction of Loki in the current torture that he's in with the snake dropping the venom on and the only relief he gets is, is when his wife holds that bucket mm-hmm. and catches that. And then as she, when she has to empty it, that out, then he gets tortured. That's like 100% taken directly from like traditional Norse mythology. And then later on in 2017 when Neil Gaiman publishes his Norse mythology – that story is also in there. So that story is very like very important to Neil Gaiman. And the depiction of it in this comic is almost exactly like a traditional Norse story. Yeah, so basically what's happening in this issue is uh, Odin learns from Hugin and Mugen that hell is empty and up for grabs. And he hatches a plan to get hell. And to do that, he recruits... Loki, because, like, he's the, you know, ultimate wheeler and dealer trickster. And then he brings in Thor to keep Loki in check. It has this very, like, action movie, like, heist movie, getting the team together vibe. Yes. To it. 
But I think, like, the hints we get of the relationship between Odin and Loki in this are really interesting. They're, like, blood brothers, but Loki is in this horrible punishment that Odin has given him. But then Odin, in a way that I think kind of reflects some of this stuff with Lucifer and God, I think almost sort of sees this punishment he's given Loki as, like, an act of mercy. Like, in a way, he's like, that's the best I could do for you, buddy. And I think... It could have been worse. I think Thor and Loki are the are balancing out Odin because Odin's in the middle and those two are on the ends and I can't, they kind of balance each other out good and evil wrong and right. They're always at opposite ends. And then when they kind of do agree, they only agree because they agree with Odin. They don't agree with each other. Yeah. Even visually like Odin is drawn. He isn't really exaggerated at all. The most like stylized thing about him is just that he has that kind of dream thing going on where there's all these deep shadows moving across his face and body whether otherwise he's just trying to look like a normal dude probably in like his late 50s with a big hat and in almost a way it kind of feels like thor and loki are just parts of odin like they are elements of his personality externalized and at war with each other well i mean i think if you think about like american gods he depicts odin in the same way. Mm-hmm. Odin is just a middle-aged man. He's a con man. And I think even at some point, he's just wearing a trench coat and a fedora. Yeah. So, and it's the same thing. I mean, Shadow is almost like his Thor. Yeah. And I, th- I think, like, you could almost read a lot of this as, like, a prequel to American Gods. Like, it's not hard to see how the relationship between Loki and Odin and this evolves into their relationship in American Gods, where they're fully at odds with each other and have had this like serious falling out. So this, this episode starts with Loki and Odin and Thor, but in essence, it is just the part where Morpheus is in his castle and all of these gods and the fairies and other sort of creatures show up because they want to try to convince Morpheus to give them the key to hell so that they can run it. And this is when you start to see like the different gods and what they want to do with hell. And then you also start to see the sort of the germ of the sort of nut of what American gods is, is that these gods are becoming obsolete and they want to sort of become more relevant again and one of them some of them want to own hell as a way to be more relevant yeah so the ones that we meet we get to see the guardians from outside of dream's castle which we first met in dream of a thousand cats right and then showing up at dream's doorstep we have the norse gods represented by odin thor and loki we have the egyptian gods represented by bast uh Bess and Anubis. Right. We get Susano no Makoto uh, from the Japanese pantheon, who is important leader in Lucifer. Uh, we get our boy, Karanzan, and Azazel and the Merkin, mother of spiders, who represent the demons who want hell back. Uh, we get one of the lords of order, who's Lord Kilderkin, who is a cardboard box being carried by a floating naked fat man. I think he's supposed to be a djinn. Yeah, I think he is supposed to be a djinn. And then we get Shivering Jenny of the Shallow Brigade, who represents the Lords of Chaos. And then Remael and Duma, two angels who are sent by the Creator to observe the proceedings. There's also a bunch of other characters who are never explicitly named. 
there's like a guy that looks like Merlin and a faceless dude who show up a couple times, and I don't know who they're supposed to be. I mean, maybe one of them literally is supposed to be Merlin. I don't know, but I also thought it was interesting that Order and Chaos are almost, they're like the new gods, and they're in, and even like Chaos is depicted as being this cardboard box that can only communicate via these uh, pieces of paper, and the pieces of paper look like computer printing, so it's yeah. sort of a nod to this. And then I thought, like, I'm I'm not quite sure, but I thought like Jenny was almost like a like a homage to like Stephen King in it. And she's got the red balloon, and she's dressed like a clown. I, it seems pretty. And she clear. has a yellow dress on at one point, like a yellow outfit. So, so the Lords of Chaos and Lords of Order are a DC thing. They're they are a, a big part of the mythology of the DC universe. I was looking at this recently to try and figure out when they were written in because a bunch of characters were later retconned to be related to these concepts, and I was trying to figure out when that happened, and I'm not sure. Oh, you but, didn't? You, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hmm? I was going to say we didn't mention the fairies show up. Too. Oh, the fairies also show up. The Clurakin, I think, is his yes, name, and, and Nuala are both representatives of fairy from their sent by Titania. Um, but yeah, the Lords of Chaos and Lords of Order are like a DC thing that is being worked into this, uh, which later will get a really hard reminder that this story takes place in the DC universe. But don't they remind you a little bit of like media and technology, the new gods? Yeah, Neil Gaiman's portrayal of them is very different than how they've been portrayed before, but he's still like playing around with these concepts from the DC universe because when we see Order talking to itself, it's like has this very like technological computer thing like this idea that something that's completely ordered is like a machine or a box of cardboard whereas chaos is this like swirling void of color and noise so he pretty much tells everyone come on in you're welcome we're gonna have a party there's gonna be entertainment and then afterwards i'm gonna make my decision so while they're having this feast and Thor is acting like a complete ass and hitting on Lady Bass. And You're just... getting a little ahead of us. That's not... There's a whole thing that happens in between that. Right. Because this issue just ends with uh, Dream in a really great outfit. Yes, where he's sort of... It's sort of... It's a... almost like priest robes or something. I'm not sure. There's it's a like lot a of... mashup of like Egyptian and Asian culture as as well as sort of like like a medieval like monk's robe. Yeah, it's very strange. And he has this sort of long flowing hair and he's kind of like this very serious and he's just standing there with his key in one hand and his like... Spear or staff or something in the other. But yeah, it ends with him being like, okay, we're going to have this party. And then we get into episode four, which is the one that you were calling kind of an interlude before, which I think is true to a certain extent. Well, I think it's an interlude in that it's not pushing the story of Dream, but it's showing... The effect of what happened when hell was closed. Because he just sent everybody who was evil out of hell. And apparently they just ended up wherever they wanted to go. Yeah, it's this idea that like... So the story, what happens in this issue is... We are introduced to Charles Rowland. He's a 13-year-old boy who is in a boarding school in England. Of course. His father is an architect who is working in Kuwait. Who has be- been captured by the forces there. Because I mean, this story takes place, I guess, right before... The start of the Gulf War? Yeah, because it's the early 90s. It's, it's 1990, specifically. So um, there's still a conflict, but it hasn't officially become a war. Yeah, so his dad is disposed of. His mom is dead. He has to spend the holiday at the school. 
And then the spirits of all of these people whose souls are still attached to the school, kids who died there, people who are still hung up on it, just return. And the school becomes filled with ghosts. He gets bullied and tortured by these, the ghost of these awful bullies. He dies in the attic under the care of a kid that the bullies had previously killed in a satanic ritual. Edwin. Edwin Payne. And then at the end of the story, uh, Death shows up to take Charles with her. Charles refused to go, refuses to go without Edwin, and then they both leave the school together. And it, the whole issue kind of is this exploration of that idea that, like, yeah, you sort of make your own hell, and the things you're hung up on can only torture you in so much as you let them torture you. And in the end, through their friendship, Edwin and Charles get to escape the school in a way that no one, none of these other people do. Because they acknowledge that they don't need to be there and they don't need to be hung up on these things and they can work together to support themselves to get past this trauma by literally physically leaving the school and leaving behind their bones, which are still in the attic of the school at the end. Yeah, I think it's interesting because Charles becomes, he becomes a ghost at the point where there's no help. Yeah. So he doesn't go anywhere. He has a choice to stay, and he convinces Edwin to stay. Mm-hmm. So. No, he convinces Edwin to... To stay on Earth with him, and, and they have an adventure. Because eventually it becomes a spinoff. Yeah, so this is... It doesn't come up in Sandman, which is, is a little disappointing, but they become the Dead Boys detectives, and I absolutely love that. They're essentially the Hardy Boys, but ghosts. And they go on adventures and solve mysteries together as ghosts, and it rules. They first show up in, there's a story called The Children's Crusade, which is a big crossover between all the Vertigo books that Neil Gaiman wrote. Not that not all the books he wrote, but he wrote this crossover between all the books. So like Sandman and Animal Man and Swamp Thing, they're, they're all in this story together. And that's where the Dead Boy Detectives first show up. And then eventually they get their own series. Uh, and they're great. I, I'm a big fan of Edwin Payne and Charles Rowland. I did not realize this. This is totally unrelated. There is a whole, I should know, there's a whole genre in British fiction about boarding school literature. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge thing. And I guess this story is sort of highlights that. You know, there's this whole, I guess it's like the Smiths. It's like the headmaster's ritual. There's this whole, like genre of fiction that's about how awful boarding schools are yeah i mean and the bullies are essentially they're the archetypal boarding school story villains but taking to an extreme where they become this deadly force they're also kind of this like representation of like the lost generation like they went to fight in world war one and died and they've never gotten beyond their school days and they're still you know inescapably hung up on on being in school because that's the only time they've ever i guess the only time they've ever really felt powerful once they got out into the real world even though they were given guns and shit they were ultimately powerless and ended up dying in the trenches i also like in this story how when death shows up she's like in her exercise gear and she's just so overworked because like hell has been closed and she just says okay charles if you want to stay then just stay She's like, I'll come and get you. When yeah, I'll be back for you later, but I just can't. Spoiler alert, she doesn't. He stays a ghost and becomes a detective. <laughs> it's very good. Well, I think that's also about like letting people have their the the kind of death that they yeah. want. You know, and Charles wants to stay as a ghost. 
Yeah, well, he wants to stay with his buddy Edwin. They're also, like... I I like when they become the Dead Boys Detectives because it's, like, they're... They kind of represent these different styles of fiction. You know, Edwin is very much like a My School Days, a separate piece, boarding school fiction protagonist. And then Charles is sort of like a hardy boy. Like, he, he wears, you know, like a sweater and jeans... And he's much more optimistic and less fearful. Edwin is very fearful. Mm -hmm. Even, like, as a ghost, he seems like, he's like, I don't know, should we leave? You know, and Charles is like, yeah, we just walk out. Like, no one's going to stop us. We're we're ghosts. We can do whatever we want at this point. And he's like, I don't know. But yeah, that kind of, like, sets the thesis of this, like, yeah, you you make your own hell. But the way you escape it is by connecting with somebody else. You can't do it on your own. And everyone that tries to is is doomed i mean i think that's why all these themes of like dream making friends and like with matthew the raven and hob gadling are important for him eventually growing and changing as a character yeah hob is his charles (laughs) but yeah that's that's all that issue really is yeah they never show back up in sandman and there's never actually any mention of them other than this brief yeah issue Mm -hmm. But this is like, this, like I, so from this volume, we get the sand, the Lucifer spinoff, we get the Dead Boys Detective, and we also get, um, I think Death High Cost of Living, one of the death graphic novels, deals with her dealing with this surplus of dead souls in the world. Oh, okay. Because that doesn't really come up a ton in this. We get this one little little bit of her dealing with it and that's pretty much the whole thing well i think also she says that she's overworked at one point you know when dream says well you you asked me to come and when i have problems and when i don't (laughs) and then she's like not now i got a shit ton of work to do and he just wants to hang around and talk about it's also such a great little family thing where she's like all right brother you gotta get your shit together go fix this and then when he goes to do his own thing and solve his own problem, he immediately makes a way bigger problem for her <laughs> that she has to spend all of her time dealing with now because he had to fucking make Lucifer get all wistful and dreamy and abandon his post. Exactly. And now it's her problem. Exactly. Then, So yeah, so then the next issue is where we get into the party. So this one, I subtitled it Meetings All Day. Oh, this is totally like a work event. He's got to put on a brave face and have this party where he's the host. And there's all of these like clashing personalities. And then he has to have all of these meetings with them individually where they all think they're the most important person to talk to him today. And their issue is all the biggest. And we find out pretty much everybody's motivation for wanting hell. So we find out that the fairies have to pay a tithe to hell every seven years. Um, which is a weird, do you know about this? No. So this is a thing from folklore um, that I've always been sort of fascinated by because I've never been able to find out why. I think it's very specifically a Scottish thing. It might actually be specifically from one region of Scotland. But it shows up in a couple of poems. It shows up in Tam Lin. This idea that like the fairy queen has to pay a tithe to hell every seven years. And it's never explained in anything as far as I know. The only thing I can think of is that it's a post-Christian edition to try and make the fairies unambiguously evil because it's like they're magic. So they have to be evil. And what better way to make them evil than to literally put them in debt to the devil? See, I thought that maybe they were, this had something to do with the fact that they were 
immortal and didn't die. Mm-hmm. So they owed it. They owed something to hell because they didn't die, or they were undead. There maybe that's entirely possible. There is in the books of magic spinoff that happens later that actually comes out of the children's crusade. There is an explanation given. It's not written by Neil Gaiman, but the explanation in that is basically that the realm of fairy is built on a part of hell. That they're essentially renting the land that fairy is built on from hell, which is why they have to pay the tithe. That would make sense. But that's there's no explanation given in in this story, and there's really no explanation given in the the poems and folklore that that comes from. Well, that would make sense because in the Midsummer Nights. All the fairies are getting ready to leave. Yeah. And they're going to this world. So that would make sense that the world they're going to is sort of adjacent to hell. Can I just... I'm, just, I'm a big fan of that Books of Magic spinoff. I don't think it's collected anywhere, which is a bummer. Because I could would kind of like to read it for the podcast at some point. But that there's an issue where you find out that there was an original king of hell. I'm um, king of fairy. And that he, out of guilt for this tithe forfeits his own identity and place in fairy and in the memories of his people to live in solitude and there's this really beautiful section where he's like you know i'm not a person and i'm always changing and i'm wearing a new face every day and one day i'll have a face that matches my soul and that is always like that stuck with me for a really long time so shout out to that, I guess. I don't know where, where I was going besides uh, that's a really good part of an underrated book. Well, this whole thing with the fairies is very similar to what Tolkien does with the fairies in Middle Earth. Hmm? He sends the, the oh. they go to leave to this ambiguous world that's sort of a more magic focused world. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here is that they're they're leaving and then these two emissaries show up and trying to negotiate. They don't want Morpheus to assign anyone to be in charge of hell. They want to keep it empty because if it's empty, they don't have to pay the tithe. Yeah. So that's pretty much with their motivation. Yeah, yeah. So that's their motivation. We learn that Odin's motivation is that he is afraid of Ragnarok. And he thinks by acquiring hell... And I guess essentially moving Asgard there? Is that his plan? He's going to be able to escape Ragnarok? Well, there's some kind of... There is confusion, and this is one of the things I was going to ask you about. There's some confusion in what's going on with Odin. Because it turns out that he has created this bubble world. And in the bubble world, he has... He's running a simulation of what he thinks will happen in Ragnarok. So that he can try to figure out how to stop it. And then for some reason, this bubble world, I, this is the part that confuses me. I got this. Okay. This is, so this whole thing is in reference to a comic called The Last Days of the Justice Society of America, which is a, a one shot issue from 1986 that I could do a six hour podcast about. It's bizarre. The short version is, after Crisis on Infinite Earths, when they compressed all of their continuity together in one world, they had the Justice Society of America rolling around in the past. Because now, originally the explanation for why the Justice Society weren't just like around and interacting with the Justice League is they were on another world. Now they weren't, and so they needed to deal with that, because DC, I guess, didn't want those characters to be around. 
So they got Roy Thomas to write a story to write them out of continuity. And what happens is a bunch of really weird shit involving time travel and Hitler having the sphere of destiny that ultimately results in Hitler. So in the DC universe, the reason that the superheroes couldn't just like pick up Hitler and throw him in the ocean and end World War II is because Hitler had the spear of destiny, the spear that pierced the side of Christ, and he was using it to keep them out of the war. So if they ever showed up in Europe to fight in the war, he would use the spear of destiny to control their minds and turn them on the allies. The other thing that apparently happens in the DC universe is that instead of killing himself in the final days of the war, Hitler uses the spear of destiny to try and trigger Ragnarok. The Justice Society travels back in time and enters the realm of the Norse gods, fuses with the gods, and then fights the final battle of Ragnarok over and over for the till the end of time to prevent it from spilling out and destroying the Earth. Okay, that makes perfect sense because when Odin shows this little bubble that he's created to Morpheus, he says... I made it to simulate Ragnarok so I can figure out what's going on. And then at some point, some warrior showed up that I did not create. I don't know how they got there. And now they're fighting yeah. in this bubble. And then they show the picture very closely. Yeah, and it's our boy. It's it's two characters we see, which one of them is our boy, Hector Hall's dad, the original Hawkman, Carter Hall. And the other is Wesley Dodds, the original Sandman, who is imbued with a portion of Dream's essence because he was supposed to fulfill that role as, like, the earthly representative of Morpheus while he was trapped in the glass bottle before the beginning of the series. So that's why this bubble of fake Ragnarok has a portion of Dream's essence in it because it's imbued in Wesley Dodds, who's in there. So what, essentially what this issue reveals is that Hitler didn't tap into the real Ragnarok and the real realm of the gods— he accidentally tapped into this fake one that Odin had created to try and run a simulation on how Ragnarok would play out. And that's what Odin is trying to bargain with Morpheus with. He tells him, I'll give you this bubble which has a piece of your soul if you give me what I want. So yeah. they're all trying to give the Sandman something to get the key to hell. Can I just say, I just want to say a little bit about the last days of the Justice Society. Like I said, I could talk about it forever. I'm not going to do that here. If you're interested in it, you should check it out because it's a really weird comic. It's really weird on a couple levels. One of them is just like the plot way because it's got all this stuff about the Justice Society remembering the crisis on Infinite Earths and having a funeral for their members who got erased from reality. And then it flashes back to a previous funeral and then there's all this time travel stuff. And there's this panel that I tweeted out from it recently where the Spectre just screams, I am the universe and I am dying. But it was written by Roy Thomas, who was Stanley's original protege. So he wrote it in 1986. He's, he's 46 at the time he wrote it and he's been in comics for over 20 years. And in a way, it feels like he's writing his own eulogy as a superhero story. There's this part where Hawkman has this thing where he's like, this world doesn't need us. They have all these young heroes and they still remember us, but they're more attached to these younger versions of us and we're redundant. And then they have this like last final stand. It's, it's almost heartbreaking in a way. If you're, like I said, if you're interested, check it out. If you're not, don't worry about it because it might just end up giving you a headache. <laughs>
Yeah, so that's that's Odin's deal is I'll give you this bubble with this fake Ragnarok and you'll get a piece of your soul back. And Dream is essentially like, yeah, I don't care. I don't really want that. Then he meets with Jenny. Yeah, who just threatens him. Yeah. She's like, chaos will attack you forever. And uh, then he meets with Order. And he says that Order has been collecting the dreams of the recently dead mm-hmm. for their own purposes. I don't know if this ever pays off. But it seems like they're trying to do something along the lines of what Brute and Glob did. And he does the same thing. He's like, okay, thank you. It's kind of similar to the thing with Lucifer and the souls. Where he's like, yeah, why do I? why would I need that? Yeah. And then, what does Susano offer him? I don't know what he offers him, but he pretty much just wants Hell as part of his organi- his family's organized crime syndicate. Is it a crime syndicate? Because I took it as like they're they're like they're the Japanese. They you know his pantheon got kind of wiped out, similar to what happened in Japan after World War Two, and now they've become this like psycho industrial power and he's like yeah marilyn monroe is part of our pantheon and also we got king kong and they're like i i took it as more corporate than criminal yeah i think he doesn't really offer anything he just says yes i think it is corporate because he just says name your price however much money you want well whatever you want we'll give it to you i really like he he's not in a lot of this but he's a really interesting character where he's very like straightforward he has no illusions of like grandeur in a way that a lot of the other gods do he's just like being a god's a business i'm good at that what do you want morpheus i think also this is the part that most reminds me of american gods because he tells morpheus that they're trying to grow their brand Mm -hmm. as gods because they want to stay relevant yeah and that's kind of what he's saying and that's why he says like oh well we have marilyn monroe it's kind of like we're a corporation and we have these brands and these brands keep us relevant, and having hell as one of our brands will keep people to remember us and will remain, you know, viable as gods because we were able to expand and evolve. And yeah, he's a, he's like he's like Sony. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really a really interesting portrayal of a deity, and a really interesting portrayal of religion because that's like a thing. Like we've you and I have had personal conversations about like how Christianity kind of won. Out over all the other sort of like mystery and prophetic cults in, you know, in biblical time, you know, ancient Israel, because they just had the best branding and they acquired all of these other brands. Like they essentially bought out John the Baptist. And like, that's what's happening here with Susana. I really like that. Uh, and then Azazel, the demon shows up. Well, no, first. Oh, best. Shows up. And she's the one who says, I have some information about your brother. Yeah. That's what she's trying to bargain with. Turns out she doesn't really have any information. She just sort of has this sort of rumbling from the cat world, the gossip that she's hearing from the other cats. This is like a setup for a joke, I think. Because doesn't it turn out later on that his brother has a pet, but it's not a cat? He has a dog? I I thought it was also interesting that she says, I like it better when you have a cat head. Yeah, because when you're a human, I can't read your emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I kind of, I like her. I mean, she's kind of like a sassy goddess. Yeah, she's, she, and she gets harassed by <laughs> Thor throughout the party and then she puts him in his place. And he ends up being this like crying, sad, emasculated drunk under the table. I also like when Jenny gives the balloon to Morpheus and then he has this balloon and he's kind of like, here, Matthew, you take it. 
And then yeah. Matthew just takes He's it. like, why would I want this balloon? And then it's just a smash cut to a panel of him <laughs> flying away with the balloon. Matthew gets a lot of characterization in this. Is this the issue where he reveals that he made a deal with a demon in his past? I think so. When he's talking to Eve. That's the first major hint that he's Matthew Cable from yes. Swamp Thing. And now now he talks to Azizel. Yeah, so Azazel, who, I mean, I love the visuals of him. He's just like a terror in time and space, full of stars and mouths. Yes. It's very, like, a very Lovecraftian representation of a demon. Um, And he basically says, uh, it's ours, it's our land. And Dream's like, are you really trying to appeal to my sense of justice? You're a demon. And then he's like, okay, sure, but we'll give you Karanzan. And then Dream's like... Why would I want that, dude? I don't give a shit about Karanzan. And then he's like, oh, also we have Nada. Which is revealed in earlier, in the previous issue, I think. That they they were the ones who took Nada out of hell and they've been holding her captive. I think it's also interesting later on when he has to go into the it's, demon and rescue. He rescues Karanzan and he's kind of like, no hard feelings <laughs> like at this point. Because you know, Karanzan really didn't do anything to him. He was just chosen to duel him. Yeah, and I don't think he really cared that much. He was kind of just like there with them. And he has a like a, a hot thing for uh the other the Merkin, the Merkin, the, <laughs> the the Queen of Spiders. They're like hitting on each other and making out and she's like weird like torture flirting with him the whole time and then she dupes him and wraps him up in a spider web and gives him to his age. And he still doesn't hostage. really even care. He's kind of like good time like 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 yeah, he's Ron's like the most actually, laid back like demon ever. He comes across as like pretty likable <laughs> in this story. Like, I mean, he was just kind of a douche in the first time he shows up, but now it's like, all right, Karanzan, I get you. You're just trying to live your life, man. He also seems like he kind of buys into Azazel's clearly false promises when he gives a speech to the demons and is like, "This is going to be a communist hell where we're all going to be in charge." And it becomes pretty clear from what Azazel says and does later on that that was bullshit and he just wants to be in charge of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the end of the issue, right? Yeah, I kind of think he, I think Azazel really wanted, like, he doesn't really know Dream that well because he really thought Dream would get intense about seeing Nada and he... I, I think he knows Dream well, but he knows the old Dream that hasn't yeah. gone through the character arc we've seen before. He expects Dream to immediately fly off the handle in a fit of emotion and hand over the key, which he doesn't do here because he's a different, he has grown and changed since the, you know, even since the last time Azazel saw him in the, in the first volume. So then we start into episode six, which starts with the fairies and they're talking. And this is where you see the Merlin guy and you see Loki and Thor have an interaction. And then, Dream says, okay, everybody gather around that, you know, I've made a decision and, you know, he's going to come to, you know, the resolution and they're all waiting around to find out what, what's going to happen. And he finally talks to the angels. And then the angels are like, oh, I got a message from my boss. And yeah, this part's fascinating because I think this really does, to what you said before about um, Lucifer being manipulated by the creator, I think you see it here. Where he he puts them in this impossible situation where the message they get is God or the creator says there's always got to be a hell. It's a reflection of the silver city and of heaven. It it serves this cosmic purpose. uh, So it has to exist as a place for the damned and the demons. And you two, 
Remiel and Duma, you're going to be in charge of hell now. You're going to be my agents in hell and you can never return to the Silver City. And it's brutal. Like you see Remiel go through this moment where he's like, I, I can't believe you would do this to me. I've only ever served you faithfully and loved you. And now I'm being damned for no reason just because it benefits you. Well, now I'm going to rebel. And then he's like, if I rebel, all that's going to happen is I'm going to end up in hell, which is where you want me anyway. And it's incredibly manipulative and cold. And it's just like, damn, God, how are you going to do your boy like that? But then he also says, I can't leave my partner. Yeah. These angels are obviously partners. I can't leave my partner off to go. But you know what? It made me think, and this is the question I have for you. If God did not intercede and go to Morpheus and say, here's what you have to do. And then Morpheus is like, well, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. What would Morpheus's decision been? I don't think he knows by this point. He didn't. He never had a I don't decision. think he ever makes the decision. I think he's still unsure. I think what he would probably like to do if he could, is leave hell empty and then just, like, fight Azazel for Nada. Which is what he ends up kind of having to do anyway. But I, I don't think he's come to it. It's, it's impossible. Like, it, it really is like a heavy burden and a torture that is put on him when he gets this key. Because there is no right decision. But I think it also shows that maybe what Lucifer was saying was true. Where he hinted to Dream that he was manipulated to rebel against the creator because the creator wanted him to do this. I think what happens to Remiel and Duma is something similar to what happened to Lucifer. God, because it's like God is invested in there being a hell. There wasn't a hell before Lucifer. So Lucifer's fall would have needed to have happened and would have needed to have been part of God's plan. I imagine that God probably did put Lucifer in some kind of impossible situation where the results were be damned or rebel. Or fight your damnation and end up damned anyway because you're fighting against God. I don't. I don't know, but this definitely seems to hint that that's what happened. But it. I mean, it's pretty anticlimactic after he comes out and says, "Okay, none of you are getting the key to hell," and they're all like, and even Odin's like, "Okay," like no one's really that upset that they didn't get it. I like that, Odin except said- for the angels who got the worst demotion of all time yeah because it's better to rule in hell but ruling in hell still sucks major ass yeah but like i love that odin's reaction is like i should just stole it (laughs) why why did i why did i try to play straight why i I got loki on my side why didn't we just fucking steal that thing (laughs) which is such a good like yeah dude you should have done that dummy i am surprised that um no one did try to steal that key yeah. That there wasn't some kind of heist I, going on. I think on. the thing is, the only one that would have done it is Loki, who's smart enough to know that he doesn't want it. Yeah. I also like that this depiction of Morpheus, where he was kind of like, he's not in his formal, he's not a formal leader at this time, and he's just wearing his jeans and his t-shirt, and he's, you know, the Neil Gaiman version of Morpheus at this time. You know, he's just wearing his Lou Reed outfit. Yeah, so all the gods, the Norse gods and the Egyptian gods are like, yeah, easy come, easy go. And the fairies are kind of upset. And the Lord of Order is like, well, this is a very orderly decision. Good job. <laughs> and Shivering Jenny is like, uh, yeah, I didn't want the key. I was just fucking around, dude. I'm chaos. Like, of course, I don't give a shit. <laughs> right. This was chaotic, so I'm fine with it. And then 
Who else is... Oh, Susano is also just kind of like, man, whatever. And the angels are very upset. And then Azazel makes his big stand. Uh, which is like, hey, I'm going to fucking kill... I'm going to destroy and torture Nada and Karanzan unless you give me that ding-dang key. And then Dream jumps inside of him, rescues both of them, and then uses his power over his own domain to capture Azazel in a box. Right, because he kind of tricks him with the whole hospitality situation. Because, you know, he offers his hospitality to whoever comes into his castle. Mm -hmm. And Azazel says, well, you didn't know about these. And he says, it doesn't matter. It applies to anyone who's my guest, whether I know it or not. And that's where he's able to sort of, he sort of bests him in a like kind of trickster way. Yeah, and then he puts him in the special trunk of foreshadowing and callbacks. (laughs) <laughs> With the Corinthian skull and the city in the bottle. Exactly. So. Uh, but even, like, Corazon is kind of like, thank you. I'll just go back to hell. And then uh, the issue ends with uh, Loki freaking out and saying that he doesn't shouldn't go back and this is wrong. And then Matthew and Dream having a conversation about how you probably don't want to talk to Nada because you... You fucked her over big time, but uh, you need to do that right now, my friend. And he goes to do it, and then we get the epilogue. A lot of which deals with the angels accepting their place in hell, some of which deals with Morpheus and Nada having their conversation. Does this... Okay, so it's in the epilogue. I was going to say, is the resolution for the fairy storyline is also in the epilogue. Yeah, it's in the epilogue. So this is sort of the wrap-up. This is the, the, the end of it. So it shows the angels going to hell and they kind of decide that unlike Lucifer, they're going to manage hell in a different way. This is so good. So I think an interesting thing here is their robes are not as flowing. One of them is completely naked now that they've like been imprisoned in hell. Because they sort of, it's the reverse of what happened to Lucifer. Lucifer was dressed in the trappings of the minister of hell with his wings and his toga. And then as he shed that, he became more human. Mm -hmm. And then he was naked, and then they had this sort of imagery of him half in the shadows, and it looked like he was starting to wear pants. And then, so then he shed his, like, devilishness and became more human. And then as the angels are in hell, they're shedding their sort of Silver City, you know, angel persona and becoming more like lucifer like they they're starting instead of wearing the flowing robes they're wearing the togas and then slowly the togas diminish till they're sort of naked naked but i think they have an interesting arc that's different from lucifer where eventually what they come to at least one of them remiel right comes to accept is you know i'm not being punished per se this is a duty that i have and he embraces this idea that, like, I'm going to make this place about redemption and not punishment, which is, like, a important theme in this whole comic. But that leads to this really great and funny part where he doesn't actually change anything. No. He just, like, has a cheerier attitude. He's like, this is the boss that went to the, like how to be a good leader (laughs) seminar and is like, I'm going to put a cappuccino machine in the break room, but you still have to work overtime on weekends. And if I catch you, you know, taking too long a break, I am going to dock your pay. 
But, but then the people who are in hell say, oh, it's so much worse. Yeah, that's the best part. He's going to say, like, you're going to torture yourselves until you have come to a part where you redeem yourselves. And then all the people are like, no, it's worse. Yeah, because Lucifer was this indifferent boss. And now <laughs> Remuel is here giving you a speech about how this is going to make you a better person. And <laughs> as he flies away happy and content in his decision, you just have the tortured soul being like, no, this is worse. <laughs> it's so funny. I love that part. So first it starts out with he dreaming Nada decide he wants to speak with her and she speaks with her him and they come to a sort of he in a, in his dreamlike way apologizes this is a half ass apology I think the sequence is really good cuz he gives a half ass apology and she rightfully calls him out for being a dick and acting like an abusive asshole he he gives a slightly more sincere apology, but it's clear that he's not fully at the place he needs to be to understand just how bad what he did was. And then they both come to this mutual agreement that, like, you know, like I said, it feels it's a little anticlimactic in a way that feels really realistic, where they're both like, well, we can't be together, so I guess we're just going to have to part ways, and there isn't going to be this powerful reunion because he's like, I can't give up my station and you don't want to be with me while I'm still dream. And so Nada ultimately decides to be reincarnated as another as a human. I think it's interesting, too, because when he first talks to her, he is his Sandman that we know. And then as the conversation evolves, he becomes the Sandman that she knows. Well, I think every time we see him from her perspective, he's like that. Because there's that one panel in when he's in Azazel where he's reaching out for her. And through that whole issue, we see him as the chalk white Sandman. And then when he's reaching out to her, he's Kai, the Kaikul that we saw in uh, Tale of Sand. I think Tales it's, of Sand. I think it's very... Tales in Sand. I don't remember. I think it's... It shows his evolution later on in the story when Nada is reborn and he goes to the nursery and he's holding her and he tells her, despite everything, she is always welcome in the dreaming. And I think that sort of shows his sort of evolution from being this sort of very judgmental and quick, you know, fiery-tempered decision maker to being this sort of tempered more gentle more forward-thinking dream i mean she even says that to him when they're fighting she's like are you gonna do it again are you gonna punish me again and he real like he starts to have this realization like oh i can't do that i can't keep doing this shit yeah and he starts to break the cycle and then we see that again in this issue where um susano requests to stay an extra day and then as he's leaving he and Dream have a conversation where Dream reveals that he knows that that's not Susano. That is Loki in disguise who has condemned Susano to take his own punishment. And they have this conversation where Dream's like, where Loki's like, are you going to send me back to, to be punished? And Dream's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I can make a copy of you that can suffer that punishment for you and you can be free. And I, and it's like, the dream from volume one would never in a million years yeah, do would, that. He would 100% rip him right back down that Asgard and get him put right back in there. And he, but he shows this act of mercy to Loki, who we know is a shit. But, and like, it kind of, kind of comes to bite him in the ass that he does this, or does it? But I think that 
Dream likes those kind. Like he liked the hobgoblin. He likes these sort of tricksters. Yeah. And I think he he kind of has like a little more compassion for people who are like that. So. Well, yeah, because he's essentially he's helping. He's trying in a way to help Loki again break this this cycle and his role in it. Like the mythology says, Loki's role is to be punished until Ragnarok, where he dies fighting Heimdall, which comes up in the in this story. And Dream, by creating that duplicate, is trying, in a way, to help Loki escape, you know, this predetermined role that he's supposed to be in. Yeah, I think so. But now we have, like I said, we have Loki's on the loose. We know Robin Goodfellow's on the loose because he stays behind at the end of Midsummer's Night Dream. We've got Desire. We're like, there's a big pileup of tricksters waiting to happen. Yes, definitely. So not a story is gone. She's done. Yeah. Her cycle is done. So hell has been resolved. There, There's new management in hell. Boom. Loki gets caught, but he doesn't get sent back. And then what happens next is Nula, who is the, oh, the fairy, fairy, she was originally meant to be a gift to Morpheus. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't want anything to do with this. You can stay. You can stay in my castle. You can live in the dreaming. But you can't use your glamour. Mm-hmm. You have to show your true form. And then they show her as her, as the what the fairy looks like. She's got brown hair and pointy ears. And she's kind of small and kind of more plain than the beautiful blonde hair glamours. Yeah, she's not like, she's uh, more of a traditional version of a fairy and less of this sort of like Art Nouveau beautiful lady drawing of a fairy yeah so he kind of he's not really interested in her but he understands that she can't go back to the fairy world so he just sort of pushes her to the side for now yeah he's like i'll find a place for you to stay yeah don't also don't don't get don't get your magic all over my house (laughs) okay i don't need that yeah, so then Nadi is reborn, and like we said, there's a maternity ward, and Dream goes there, and he holds... Touches the second baby. He's touched in the whole volume. Yes. He's lo- he's all about touching babies on the head or whatever. He's, he's a baby fan, I guess. And then cut to the scene where Lucifer's on the beach. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, this is the very end of the issue. Lucifer's on the beach in Australia watching the sunset. This old man comes up, and they have this conversation... Where where this dude's like, yeah, I had this really shitty life, and my wife died, and my friends and brothers died in Vietnam. But I look at these sunsets, and I think, you know, if God can make these and make them different and beautiful in different ways every night, then I suppose he's not that bad. And if you're still here tomorrow, I'll see you then, buddy. And then Lucifer has this moment where he looks out at the sunset, and do you have the lineup? Let me see if I can. He says, "Is the sunsets are bloody marvelous, you old bastard. Yeah, and is he talking to God or is he talking to the old man? That's I think he's that. talking to God. <laughs> he says, "Yeah." He says, "All right, I admit it. He's got a point. The sunsets are bloody marvelous, you bastard." Satisfied. He's also drawn to look like David Bowie again. Here. Oh, he definitely does. He's he's like a more relaxed. Oh, this isn't the very end of the issue. Sure. The very end of the issue is we get the part with Ramiel, and then we get the part where uh, Destiny is reading from his book the events we just saw, and then we get the little. Um, excerpt from The Man Who Was October. But I think this is the part where you were talking about where they start to devolve from the angel that lives in the Silver City to the version of the angels that live in hell. Mm-hmm. So now they're totally naked and their wings are shabbier 
but they've come to this sort of resolution that their job is to manage hell. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I think, again, with the thing, I think in a way that scene with Lucifer and the sunset kind of reflects, like, Dream's conversation with Nada. Like, again, this is, like, two lovers realizing they can't be together, but sort of, you know, one forgiving the other in a way. Because it's like, I mean, if God is, God knows what's up, he knows Lucifer's out, and he's not doing anything to put him back in the hole. So I think in a way they're they're starting to come to some sort of understanding between each other. But they're never gonna they're never gonna get back together. Right, right. Yeah, and then the volume ends with Destiny looking in his book mm-hmm. and then the made up quote from G. K. Chesterton from The Man Who Was October. Which I guess is supposed to is I guess that's supposed to be a sequel to The Man Who Was Thursday. I don't know. I would like to think it is. I wish Neil Game I kind of would like it if Neil Gaiman just wrote that book. Like in the way that, um, what, who was it? Philip Jose Farmer wrote Venus on the Half Shell, the like fake book that Kilgore Child is writing in, I think in Breakfast of Champions. It might come up in a, a couple different We Vonnegut should do stories. a whole episode about made up books that are mentioned in other books. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's so fascinating. There's also like, that even happens in movies. There's the, you remember that movie, The Cat? returns the studio ghibli ghibli movie Uh that is a story that movie is based on a story that is a plot point in an in the girl who leapt through time interesting so what did you think of the overall volume um this is really good i said that before that the men of good fortune is my favorite issue of sandman this is my favorite like story arc in the whole thing i think it's really interesting uh, all of these different portrayals of these supernatural figures and their relationships to each other and their relationships to their duties and places in the universe. I think all of the themes of like self-loathing and punishment and like the suffering we visit on ourselves and the ways in which interacting with other people can mitigate or maybe even in, sometimes increase that suffering is really interesting. Uh, I think the ways in which this sets up the ending of the series are really cool. Yeah, this is a... I really like this one. How do you feel about Season of Mists? I thought it was good. It's very cohesive. I think the story arch is sort of, it's, you know, it starts and completes. It's a full cycle. I think it moves the overarching Sandman plot for the whole entire series. I think it moves it along pretty smoothly. It sets up a lot of what's going to happen in the next six volumes. It sort of wraps up some of the storylines that don't need to continue, like the story of Nada and Lucifer. And I mean, Lucifer comes back. Right, but I mean, the sort of part where he needed to set that spinoff going, I, see, I think that's sort of completed. You know, now hell has been, that storyline has been resolved. I think it sort of, I like the introduction to the Endless, and I like that sort of, kind of niggling like little like worm that he planted about dream's brother and the missing endless and i think it sort of gives you almost as much of the backstory of the endless that you need to start the process the rest of the volumes so i thought it was good yeah i think what's really interesting is i don't know if if he knew the ending from the beginning 
But he definitely, there's no way that in writing uh, this issue, he didn't, he doesn't already know how this series is going to end. And how, like, how many issues are we from the ending? This, so this was, what is the last issue of this? Is 28? Yes. Uh, let's see. We are. So I'm kind of confused about what comes next, because I thought that the next one that comes up is the Sandman at Game of View. Yeah, Game of View is the next one. Okay. What, what was the confusion? Because that starts at issue 32, and volume 20, issue 29 is in something called the Sandman Fables and Reflections. Yeah, it's divided kind of weird, because for some, I guess they wanted to, at some point they decided to throw a bunch of the self-contained stories off in their own okay. little volume. I mean... So we're going to be reading volume five, A Game of You. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, that's how I originally read the series was I went right from Season of Mist to A Game of You. We could slot in those couple issues before. See, the problem with that is Game of You is one long story arc that covers like five issues. Uh, So I don't know. Do you want to talk about those two, those like three issues before that that are in fables and reflections also in the next episode or do you no, want let's to just... just go to volume five of game of you and then we'll pick up because it's also it's set... that's volume six yeah so why don't we just do it in the continuity of the volumes sure so yeah just so people know though we, we are going to be skip because of the way these are collected we are going to be skipping ahead a few issues in the actual monthly comic but not in the structure of the collected volumes because they do this again later, because uh, issue 50 is also in Fables and Reflections, and then Brief Lives is 41 to 49, and then the next line after that, World's End, is 51 to 56. Okay. So, our next podcast episode, we're back to our... I shouldn't say this. I was going to say we're back to our short story format, but we're technically not back to our short story format. No, we're doing another novella like we did with... Uh, the Hellbound Heart. We are going to be reading Chronicle of Death Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So this novella was published in 1981. Mm-hmm. And then in 1983, it was translated into English and it first appeared in Vanity Fair magazine. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to talk about that particular element because I got a gift that I'm very stoked about and we'll talk about it on that issue. I mean, in that episode. I mean, you could put it together. I, I got that issue of Vanity Fair. It's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's got all these great uh, Botero illustrations, which I'm definitely going to put on the Twitter account for people to see. But I think it's going to be interesting to read this as a standalone novella with just with just discussing this. Mm-hmm. Because this is such a pivotal work for... Marquez, and also it's sort of important because it's one of the earlier magical realism stories that start to come out. I mean, it has less of the real magical realism as something like 100 Years... 100 Years of Solitude. Of Solitude. Yeah, but I think in a way this was kind of... And we'll talk about it in the, in the... I keep saying issue. We'll talk about it in the episode, but this was kind of, I think, for a lot of Americans... And just like English speakers in general, this is probably a big sort of introduction to the literature of South America. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it has a lot to do with 
fate and free will, which mm-hmm. is kind of what we talked about today. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I think that everything's connected. That's right. But yeah, so I think that'll be good. Um, do we have anything else? Nope, I think that's it. Also, if you want to check out North Mythology, published in 2017 by Neil Gaiman, there's a lot of um, a lot of the story that he tells about Loki and Odin, Thor, as well as other stories related to the Greek, to the Norse gods. That's a very good book. Yeah, um, I don't have a, a read Kraken by China Manville. Melville, Mayville. I never, I do not know how to say that dude's name, but uh, that's got some cool stuff about the Egyptian afterlife and mythology. If you're interested in those characters, also if you want a, a fun Norse mythology, you could read the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul by Douglas Adams. Yeah, which you know is really interesting and really fun. Sure. So I just uh, thought of that top of my head. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Um, spoiler. Stay tuned. See you later. Sweet dreams.